Welcome to The World Below, The War in the Heavens, a podcast exploring the adventure, the intrigue, and the magic of a land that lies beneath the celestial battle between gods and demons, a clash that has gone on since time immemorial. I'm your guide, your interlocutor, and your host, Michael Pryor. Welcome, everyone, to episode 13 of the World Below the War in the Heavens podcast, the third of season two. This one is all about King Blemon the Lucky of Anaquist. Up front is the snapshot of King Blemon. Blemon, the first and last of that name, son of Queen Varfina I, is born in 257 and takes the throne at 280, age 23, another of the youthful monarchs. He reigns until 284 and dies, age 27, with no children. Blemen is the only Anaquistian monarch of that name. Usually when there's no one named after a monarch, it's because the monarch was so villainous, so incompetent or so sordid that the name is retired, so to speak, never to be used again. This isn't the case with Blemen because he was none of those things. It simply appears as if no one since has liked the name. He certainly deserves to be included in the roll call of youthful monarchs, being a green 23 when he was crowned and dying when he was only 27, lived fast, die young and get buried in a royal mausoleum. Blemen the Lucky he was called because of the way he came to the throne after his mother, Queen Barfina, decided to choose her successor by lot. Out of the four siblings, he was the one to choose the right scale from the vase Queen Barfina held up for them, perhaps on the basis that a lucky monarch couldn't be a bad thing. Blemen's short reign saw the appearance of more pretenders, a veritable rash of them, continuing the trend that began in his mother's reign, and we discussed in the last episode. Many of them were simply Dockland hopefuls spinning a yarn and looking for a free drink, but one of those pretenders, Iona Gotenden, made quite a bit of noise before she was swiftly arrested when she declared she was the sister of Callisto Redbury, the seriously dangerous pretender of 272. Iona Gotenden's fate is unknown. Other pretenders bobbed up now and then during Blemen's reign, with a number appearing in other lands like Alm, Brel and Benthia, but none of them garnered much support. Most of them claimed to be the daughter or son of Prescon, but some were more creative. In 280, a man declared himself to be King Sane himself, explaining that he'd faked his own death so he could spend his treasure how he wanted. The fact that King Sane would have been 78 years old and the claimant was in his late twenties, didn't faze the man. Amused, Blemen chose not to behead him, and instead laughed at his audacity and gave him a purse of gold, which the man used to open an inn in Lowtown called, naturally, Sane's Palace. Rain Highlights the most notable event in Blemen's short reign was perhaps the massive flood of 287. After nearly a month of solid and torrential rain, the Gefo River burst its banks, sweeping away much of the dock infrastructure at Beacon and wreaking havoc further downstream where the Gefo meets the sea at Miro. Anaquist itself, the stronghold and Lowtown, 
were affected as well, with the minor watercourses and drains that emptied into the Gefo becoming raging torrents. One whole section of the great wall around the stronghold was undermined and collapsed with the loss of many lives, while others perished in the ruin of Lowtown, which is what happens when the levee breaks. Crying won't help you, praying won't do you no good. The mortality wasn't confined to the time of the flood either because once the water level dropped, waterborne disease ran through the population with what we know as typhoid and dysentery killing many. Blemen had his moment in this disaster. Counseled to leave for higher areas, he refused and was soon seen leading rescue teams, either slogging through waist-deep water or piloting small craft to help those stranded on rooftops. His efforts were tireless, and while he left the organisation of such things as food distribution to capable administrators, he threw himself into more physical tasks, and was even on the front line of sandbag crews, doing his best to keep water at bay. Many tales came from his working side by side with the common folk, stripped to the waist, besmeared with mud, but almost always with a grin on his face, even when his advisers were urging him to leave the dangerous locations. The Great Flood of 287 was important in other ways, apart from the tragedy of hundreds of lives lost. A hypogeum, being the subterranean facility that it is, faced inundation, and thus so did the body of the dead god. Various scale-based magical means were tried to divert waters or to make magical barriers or to render the walls of the hypogeum impermeable, but nothing worked. It was only the backbreaking efforts of King Blemen and others in filling gaps in the walls of the stronghold that kept the flood waters from the heart of Anaquist itself. In the aftermath of the flood, the failure of magical means was investigated, and the somewhat haphazard approach to magic up until this time was held up to the light. More rigorous approaches came from this disaster and helped spur on a more systematic approach to scale based magic and notably some advances in the area of magically-assisted pumping also came about. But these secrets were lost and not rediscovered for many centuries. A more troubling event in Blemen's reign was the Helenki's affair. One of Blemen's first acts after the coronation was to appoint his advisory council, which in itself is not remarkable. What did cause some furrowed brows and murmurs of discontent was that Blemen appointed a young woman, Alkyne Helenkes, as the head of the council. She was a year younger than Blemen himself, so she was only 22, while the rest of the council was the usual assortment of senior nobles, nearly half of them well into their 70s. An additional source of disquiet was that Alkyne Helenkes didn't come from any of the noble families, or even from an influential merchant house. In fact, her background was quite obscure, even shadowy. Different accounts speak of her growing up in the countryside, or in Jalocks, or even in one of the far-off wilderness settlements. And all of these accounts were purportedly from her own mouth. Regardless, it seems as if Blemen and Alkyne Helenkes knew each other very well before her appointment. Very, very well. Okay. It seems as if they had some pre-existing liaison of sorts, beginning well before he became king. With that 
established to just about everybody's satisfaction. It was assumed that the appointment of Alkani Helenkis as head of the council was some sort of sinecure, a, a way of Blemen getting his mistress a lot of money while ostensibly she was being paid for doing a job. You know what, what I mean. The people who thought that were wrong. So wrong. More wrong than Andrew Philpott, who wrote a book in 1979 called The Myth of Krakatoa, which one reviewer said flew in the face of reality. You see, Alkaini Helenkis was both fearsomely competent and a reformer. Either of those qualities would have been frightening to the conservative old guard who were quite happy with the status quo on the advisory council. But both together and embodied in a very attractive young woman, it was, it was like a nightmare come true. Fragments of the minutes of Blemen's advisory councils still exist, and in the very first meeting, Alkaini Helenki slapped down several patronising suggestions about her needing a good lie down. She also, in that meeting, rescinded an existing arrangement where councillors were paid no matter how many meetings they attended, and she also tipped out one long-standing councillor who'd been part of Farfina's council for decades because she kept falling asleep. And this was only the start. Alkaini Helenkis instituted inquiries into every part of the royal bureaucracy, including the administration of Lowtown and the military. This was enough to strike fear into the hearts of every feather-bedded administrator. While Alkaini Helenkis hadn't set out to make enemies, she gathered them the same way a mirror attracts narcissists. We have some of the letters of one of the members of the advisory council, a Lavinia Geffo, a member of the family the Geffo River was named after, naturally. She'd been a member of the advisory council of Blemen's mother, Queen Varfina, and had kept an eye on the doings of the council after she retired, so she had some experience with the politics and the personalities of this important body. She was actually highly amused by the way Elkini Helenki's capabilities upset some of the council, and she recognised that the young woman was a capable and efficient organiser. She did confide to a friend, though, that she was worried that Elkini Helenki's might move too far too fast and the enemies she made would come for her. Lavinia Geffo was on the money. Naysayers soon started putting roadblocks in front of Elkaini Helenki's efforts to root out corruption and inefficiency, but she soon showed she had many ways of getting around obstacles and achieving her ends. Finally, though, after nearly 12 months of her zeal, a combination of very senior bureaucrats and some of the most powerful nobles managed to encumber her with plans, regulations and a lack of staffing so that her efforts ground to a halt. With some reluctance, she appealed to Blemen, who summoned the advisory council to the throne room. We have Megra, the 4th century philosopher, to thank for an insight into this meeting. His text, On Governments, is more an examination of the differing forms of governments in the world below the war in the heavens up to his time than a rollicking recreation of political infighting. But in this case, he seems to have been enamoured with Elkini Helenkis, or perhaps with her reforming efforts, or perhaps both, as he has an account of the meeting written as a play. And, can I say, Elkini Helenkis emerges from this as a very appealing figure. Upright, smart, 
devastatingly sardonic and, to quote Tromka, taking no shit at all from anyone. Dressed in his finest regalia, wearing his crown and holding his new sceptre, Blemen listened to the complaints of his council members who plied him with woeful stories of Alkini Helenkis. One by one they listed their complaints, ranging from impertinence to a failure to know her place, before getting into her actual efforts to streamline the unwieldy, improve the inefficient and bolster the needy. Let it be said that Dromka doesn't make any of these councillors into sympathetic characters. Whiny and self-important would be the best descriptors. Given a chance to respond, Elkini Helenkis takes apart each of the councillors for failings of intellect, honesty, honour and personal hygiene in a monologue that has been prized in Anarchist ever since and committed to memory by her fans, who are legion. Throughout, though, Blemon was impassive. He rested his chin on his fist and listened, as he had to the councillors, thus giving them some hope. When she finished, he nodded, stood and frowned. Give her what she wants, he said. Do what she says. Thus affirming that they were sleeping together in the minds of just about everybody, and that he was in her thrall doing whatever she said with possibly dire results in the offing. Alkani Helenkis continued as the head of the advisory council and continued to gather enemies. Six months later, matters came to a head again when she had the unmitigated gall to recommend to King Blemen that a land tax be instituted, a tax that the nobles would not be exempt from. This, of course, created outrage and uproar at least in the palaces, country estates and mansions. Not so much in Lowtown, but such was the fury that a scheme was hatched, evidence forged, witnesses bribed and a case of treason brought against Elkini Helenkis. If found guilty, the only penalty for treason was death by beheading. Now, a charge of treason could only be heard by the monarch in public session which Halkini Helenki's opponents were relying on. Since they found her so infuriating, they were sure that the public would, especially if she launched another one of her scathing lectures on the scale that the councillors had previously been savaged with. The venue for this trial could only be the throne room, with King Blemen presiding in full regalia. We don't have any direct witness reports of this trial, but the trial records were copied and copied again, and so we do have a bare-bones outlines of the proceedings. Charges were read, witnesses produced their accounts of Elkini Helenkis and her supposed dealings with foreign agents, as well as the way she lined her own pockets in dozens of corrupt ways. Elkini Helenkis wasn't without legal representation, but none of her counsels spoke to rebut or object to any of the claims, and this was apparently on her orders. The records indicate that her senior counsel rose at one point to object to an egregiously incompetent statement, but she ordered him to take his seat. After the prosecutors had finished, the king asked for a statement from Alkaini Helenkis. What follows is one of the great moments in the early days of Anarchist, and one of the most tragic gaps in our record. We have hundreds of references to the statement of Alkaini Helenkis in her own defence, praising her forthrightness, her power, and the harnessing of every rhetorical device known to the ancients. 
She spoke for nearly an hour, apparently, entirely without notes, but in a way so structured that her speech had a momentum that was irresistible. It was a model of oratory and is constantly referred to as such. But we don't have a single entire record of her words. A few fragments exist, but almost all our knowledge of this remarkable speech is second-hand through the praise of others, which is mostly of a general rather than a specific kind. It's almost as if we're all supposed to have known the words by heart. Her final line is preserved, though, and it's become almost proverbial in Anarchus to this day, whenever someone is wrongly challenged or improperly accused. Addressing the king, Alkaini Halenkis concluded with, I was doing my job and I'd do the same again. We can only hope that the full text of this extraordinary speech exists somewhere in the world below the war in the heavens, perhaps shoved to the back of a shelf in a far-off library, or perhaps preserved in a chest hidden in the wall to preserve it from invaders. Fingers crossed. With no actual negating of the evidence against her, only one verdict could be handed down by the king, but instead of the beheading, he banished Alkaini Helenkis from Anarchist forever. Alkaini Helenkis left Anarchist the next morning, and ended up in the small south-central city-state of Perrin. At this time, Perrin was well known for its thinkers and its artists and attracted like-minded people from across the continent. But it was constantly teetering on, effectively, bankruptcy, with various impractical models of government being tried one after the other. Alkaini Helenkis was welcomed with open arms and within a few years had the place humming like a top. She turned Perrin into a prosperous and progressive city-state with a sound economic base and a well-functioning bureaucracy. She stayed there for the rest of her life, dying in the year 337 at the age of 80. One footnote. The Annals of Anarchist, the official record of the monarchs and their rule, does make note of the Helenkis affair. A bare-bones account, really but it does include the cryptic line, After the verdict, King Blemen took to his rooms and did not emerge for nigh on a fortnight. Another footnote. Blemen sacked the entire advisory council soon after the verdict and assembled another made up of friends and cronies from his youth. When criticised for the composition of this new council, Blemen was said to have counted with They get as much done as the last lot and they're infinitely more fun. Personal life. Blemen married twice in his short life. He married his first wife six months after his coronation, after much urging from some of his advisers, who pointed out the problems when Prescon dilly-dallied in the important function of producing an heir. Blemen's first wife was the daughter of one of the Arenthian oligarchs, an attempt to ameliorate the simmering hostility between the two nations. This wife, Pleony Nishalan, died in childbirth and the infant boy didn't survive either. Blemen married again the next year to a local, Sarah Melcullen, who survived him, but this marriage produced no children. And, of course, this means that both marriages threw up possibilities for pretenders. Two wives? That's twice the possibility of children who were hidden for one reason or another. Blemen was exceedingly tall, more than two metres in our measurements, earning him the name of Longarm Blemen. 
He was lanky rather than muscular, but his long reach made him a formidable opponent in hand-to-hand combat, of which he was an enthusiast, and he led Anarchistian forces and several skirmishes, and he led from the front. He and a small band of trusted friends would often leave the stronghold for the frontier, looking for adventure, whatever the weather, hoping to find bandits, outlaws or foreign incursions. Happy in heat or rain, they were truly riders on the storm. It was Blemen who began the tradition of featuring the monarch's head on coins. So we have a depiction of him. Young man with a somewhat long jaw, but handsome in a patrician way, uh, with hair long, nearly shoulder length, as was the fashion in those days. After Blemen's reign, all Anaquistian coins would feature the monarch's head. Idealised, of course, and long-reigning monarchs would often have several different faces, so to speak, but they do serve as a useful physical record of how the monarchs of Anaquist looked. And almost universally, they were very good-looking indeed. A useful thing in a monarch, as it helps if the people can say, well, they look like a monarch, don't they? Blemen was remembered, for some time at least, for his waterworks, perhaps prompted by the aforementioned massive floods of 287. He liked a fountain, and very soon after he was crowned, he authorised construction of a number of public fountains in Lowtown. These weren't just decorative, although some were said to be outstanding examples of godlike figures standing amid sprays and gushes, as, but they provided access to clean water for many, thanks to the aqueducts that Blemen also ordered built, bringing pure water to the city from areas particularly to the northwest. Previously, the Gefo River provided much of the water for the people, but as the population grew in Anaquist, Lowtown and Beacon, and as the river traffic on the Gefo grew, its cleanliness became more and more dubious. So the aqueducts were welcome. Lemon was mostly a well-liked king, perhaps because of these civic waterworks, but more likely because of the figure he cut during the floods. The young monarch stacking sandbags and piloting small craft to rescue commoners didn't hurt his image at all. And his love of personally leading troops into battle, even though that's what brought about his end. Blemen died in a skirmish with bandits. On one of his adventurous forays into the far eastern border region, part of the Anaquistian land that was on the edge of civilization, much subject to the depredations of the lawless, Blemen and his band of swashbucklers came upon an unusually well-organised outlaw band. Blemen's crew were outnumbered a dozen to fifty or sixty, but had the advantage of genuine war horses, superior armour and weapons. Even so, the fighting was fierce and desperate, with Blemen in the thick of it. In one of those freak moments that happen in close combat, Blemen was attacked from his blind side and swung around to meet his new foe. His helmet and visor had been battered by this time, so he swung up his visor to better see his opponent, and at that moment he was struck in the face by a dart hurled by one of the bandits on the outskirts of the fray. After bloody and dangerous fighting, fully a third of the bandits fled, and a third lay dead. The wounded suffered summary justice and were hanged with much approval from the few locals who had crept close enough to observe the battle and who attested to the fact that the bandits had massacred hundreds of people in the district. Blemen's wound was deep, laying open his cheek and affecting the bone of his jaw. Even receiving the best of attention, he was in dire straits. 
The wound became infected and he died within weeks, amid much public sadness and mourning. Perhaps it's meaningful and additionally sad that Blemen was in the middle of organising his first trip to another realm and it was said to be to the city-state of thinkers and artists. Perrin. Blemen died without children, which, as we've seen with his grandfather Prescon, opens the doors for opportunists and pretenders, as if we hadn't had enough already. The way that his second wife, Sarah Melcullen, vanished the day after Blemen's death only added to the possibilities. Naturally, the rumour quickly started that Sarah fled because she was pregnant and feared that Blemen's siblings would either eliminate her baby, the heir to the throne, or, perhaps worse, install themselves as regent and make a puppet of her child. The fact that she never appeared again in public only added to the speculation. As for the succession, the manner of Blemen's death left it in chaos. Several times during his mortal illness he tried to summon enough strength to make a decision, as he was mostly delirious and in agony nothing eventuated. He died with his siblings in attendance, each of them hoping for a final effort, a single word to indicate which of them would take the crown. But they were frustrated, departing as soon as the king's death was certified, each with their own designs on the throne. Blemen was a youthful and somewhat popular monarch, much praised for his efforts in the Great Flood disaster, but much criticised for not ensuring a smooth succession and opening the way for more strife. So was he really Blemen the Lucky? Perhaps, but by the end of the reign, his luck had truly run out. And that's all for episode 13 of the World Below the War in the Heavens podcast. Next episode, Ascot I, the Lady with the Mask. This has been the World Below the War in the Heavens, a podcast exploring the history, culture and esoterica of the world below, a continent of magic and mystery with inhabitants who keep one eye on the sky at all times. I've been your host, Michael Pryor. If you'd like to find out more about me and my books, pop over to www.michaelpryor.com.au. Farewell. Farewell.